0: All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Jeremiah 33. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Throughout the course of the last several months in the church, we have studied a number of different passages. Revelation in the morning, Jeremiah in the evening, Hebrews 11, midweek, First and 2 Peter, midweek, First John in Sunday school. Throughout all of our discussions, we have bubbled up to the surface on any number of occasions, increasingly important principles that span the whole biblical record. First, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Second, that without faith it is impossible to please him. Humility and faith. These are the prescription of godliness, and this is truly what we're going to see in Jeremiah 33.3, three, it's not exactly where we're going to go with it this evening. I hope to be a, of a great help to us a, as a church, to you as individual believers, uh, a connection that I'd never really made before, but I've, as I studied through this passage, something which I believe is, is relevant and very important to us. By God's grace, we are going to connect Jeremiah 33 to concepts that are perhaps more familiar as it relates to the gospel, and by God's grace, understand them all a little bit better. We begin in Jeremiah 33, verse 1. Reading verses 1 through 3, the Bible tells us this. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. We find Jeremiah here is still in the court of the prison, and the Lord speaks to him again. Remember, Jeremiah was in the court of the prison uh, back in chapter 32, most certainly when he was in uh, prison, and he was uh, there buying a parcel of land. He is still in the court of this prison. The Lord speaks to him again. And God appeals to the reality of God's lordship, that he is the maker of all things, that he has formed them and he has established them, that God has a design. And that within this design, he makes this statement. Call unto me and I will answer thee. Within the framework of his lordship, within the framework of his design, within the framework of the very roots of how God created things, he says, call unto me and I will answer thee. It is the essence of God's character to answer those that will call upon him. It is the essence of God's character to be available to those who will humble themselves before him and in doing so we will receive things that we never ever could have imagined. He will show us great and mighty things which we did not know before. This is an appeal to the very essence of God's character. As Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think, right? God has a way of surpassing all expectations for those who have learned to fear his name and to humble themselves before his word, calling unto him. And what we find is that this exhortation is not unlike those that we have already studied. What God is doing is seeking to draw the nation unto Repentance to cry out unto him for help, to acknowledge their legitimate incapacity and God's capacity, to acknowledge their failures and God's triumphs, to acknowledge that God is right and to align with God's way. And when they do so, God says, you will find a deliverance you never could have imagined. But as we continue, I want you to really think about this with me. The context is going to describe a state in which Israel finds themselves, as well as the state into which God desires to bring them. A state of captivity and sorrow, and bringing them into a state of regathering and salvation. And as God describes this oh so familiar idea of judgment and restoration, I mean, we've seen it any number of times now throughout the course of Jeremiah. As God describes this, think with me about the role in which Jeremiah 33 3 plays. Think with me about what God's promises are that if they will call unto him, that he will answer them. What does it mean about what God is asking them to do? As God makes these promises, founded upon a command unto them, call unto me. After which God says, I will show you great and mighty things. We continue in our context. Verses 4 and 5. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I have slain in mine anger and in my fury and for all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. So the immediate need for them to call is reflected in these verses. And what we see is that the call here is not really in the context of a prayer, right? Call unto me and I will answer thee is not necessarily directly in the idea of pray to me. It's in the idea of align with me, right? It's in the idea of cry out to me. It's in the idea of seek me. The typical spiritual exercise of asking and receiving isn't really the idea here. Seeking and finding, not really the idea here. Rather, it's the context of a wayward man who sees that God is his only hope for deliverance from the fruit of his own consequences. And God says in the context of his exhortation for them to call unto him, that the nation of Israel is thrown down, that they are beaten, that they are overcome. The Chaldeans are coming to destroy them. This is an outworking of God's fury against their rebellion. God says, you are on my bad side and I want you to realign. And he says, do this by calling unto me. Now, I want to to, to make this, this clear because that's not how this verse is normally preached, is it? Normally, this verse is preached in a prayer idea, in a Pray and I'll answer. Now that's, that's fine. God, God does answer our prayers. But that's not really what God is saying here. What God is saying here is, call unto me, align with me, acknowledge me. Now a prayer might be involved there, but the essence is deeper than that. The essence is alignment, not necessarily the practice of prayer. So within this Circumstance of utter despair, of utter hopelessness. God exhorts them, call unto me. Repent, submit, realign yourself with my word. And in doing so, find the only means by which judgment can possibly turn into mercy. And mercy is God's desire here. We know that. We know that from all of Jeremiah. Mercy is God's desire. Notice how God describes the results of this call as we continue in verses 6 through 9. God says, Behold, I bring it, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them, and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. This is the result. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. These are the great and mighty things which God says He holds in store for those who would call unto Him. He says, I will bring it health and cure. I will cure them, the nation and the people. I will bring it health and cure. I will heal or cure them. The captivity of Judah and Israel returning, being built as at the first. The nation cleansed from their iniquity, cleansed from their sin, cleansed from their transgression. Iniquities being pardoned, and they will be a name of joy unto the Lord, and of praise and of honor before the nations of the earth. They will be elevated as God has desired to do. They will be honored as God desires to do. They will be blessed as God desires to do. He will heal them. He will cure them. All of these wonderful, tremendous promises. And the world, the Bible says, will marvel at the goodness of God toward the nation. And the world will, in fact, fear and tremble for all the goodness that God will do unto them. It will cause them to fear God's name, to tremble at his, at, at his faithfulness, at his power, at his goodness. Now those of you that have been following along know that these are the results of the new covenant. We'll talk more about that again next week, as I've mentioned. But take note of this. God is telling them that on the day in which they call unto him, They will be saved from their iniquities. And I'm going to draw this link in just a moment, but in chapter 31, remember that it is within the context of the new covenant that God says He will save them from their sins, that their sins will be forgiven. God described this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34 says, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So God speaks of a wholesale forgiveness when they will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest taking place when God will give them a new heart and put his law into their inward parts and write it upon the table of their heart and he will be their God and they shall be his people and we know that this all comes back to the new covenant, right? This will happen when they enter into the new covenant, when God makes this new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So as we are reading these things about their sin being forgiven and about them being cured and all of these elements of, of chapter 33, we are linking this thus to the condition of the new covenant, right? To that time in history. Now we'll come back to these links as we finish our exposition, let's continue in verses 10 and 11. Bible says, "Thus saith the Lord: Again there shall be heard in this place which ye shall say uh, which, which ye say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever, and of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first day of the Lord. The strong contrast continues. At this point, the nation is besieged. Remember Jeremiah last week and the week before from Jeremiah 32, as he prayed unto the Lord, he said, Lord, the mounds, the mounds. Speaking of the bulwarks, speaking of those those ramparts, the the mounds that were being built, the mountains being built up the walls of the city of Jerusalem in order that they could besiege it, right? We are in a, a state of hopelessness right now. Jeremiah is writing this from the court of the prison, right? He is in prison because of the things he's been saying. There is desperation. Uh, There is sorrow. The nation will soon be torn down. It will be burned. It will be desolate. It will be without inhabitant. But then Jeremiah says, on the authority of, of the word of God through him, on the day that they call upon the Lord, he will answer them. And at that time, he will show them great and mighty things. And he continues to describe them. Jeremiah looks ahead to that time. God looks ahead to that time and what he sees and what he hears. He hears the voice of gladness, he hears the voice of the bridegroom and the bride. People don't often get married in times of tremendous civil unrest and stress. There's certainly no celebrations. If they're getting married, it's behind closed doors. It's a quick and simple ceremony because danger is afoot, because destruction lies in the wake. God says there's coming a time when there will be celebrations again. When we hear of these celebrations, there will be peace, there will be rest. Prosperity. A time when they will know the Lord, and the Lord knows them. A time when the people will praise the Lord for His goodness and His mercy and His justice. And we see a similar contrast in the next two verses. Which will be the final two verses of our exposition. Thus saith the Lord of hosts Again, in this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, in all the cities thereof shall be an habitation of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the vale or the valleys, in the cities of the south, and in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah shall the flocks pass again. Under the hand of him that telleth them, saith the Lord. Again, God says, right now, you look out of the out, out those city walls. You look to the mountains. You look to the valleys. You don't see shepherds on those mountains. You don't see flocks lying in peace. He says, there's coming a day when that peace will return. When the shepherds can be out there with their flocks, when they can graze, when they can wander in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the valleys, to the south and to the north. There will be inhabitants. There will be peace. There will be joy. Now remember, all of this hangs on that statement, call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. That cry, that, that offer from the Lord, now he's looking out and he sees their terrible state and he sees what they will be one day and this is that, that appeal. This is what he's asking them to do. He's connecting that call and those great and mighty things to their current desolation and what God has for them in the future. Now think through this with me. What we've observed thus far are not by any means new promises or new concepts. We've been reading about God tearing down Israel and rebuilding them since very early in the book of Jeremiah. The ideas of restoration, the ideas of regathering, of prosperity, of mercy, of joy. This has been God's message of hope since the day that judgment was assured. But it's only been in the last few chapters that these promises have embodied some semblance of structure. And that structure, remember, as we've established it, has been through the new covenant, that as this new covenant would be received by Israel, we see connected to it any number of other concepts from chapter 30, beginning in chapter 31. We could maybe even go back to chapter 28, 29. So, all of these blessings that God desires to pour out, and indeed all of the promises which He has made to them from the very beginning, He is now connecting to the new covenant. We'll talk more. Uh, next time we're together, uh, 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 or in in a, a, not next time, but the time after that, a little bit more about how all of these things relate to each other in the new covenant. But in the day that they will be, uh, in the day that they accept the new covenant, there's going to be this regathering and they're going to be made prosperous and they're going to abound in the knowledge of God and they're going to uh, have their iniquities removed. And remember in chapter 31, all of these things were connected to the new covenant now, in chapter 33, we see a very similar cause and effect. In chapter 33, instead of him saying, I will make this new covenant and these things will take place, he says, call unto me and I will answer thee. And when they, uh, when, when, when they call, when they make this call, when he answers them, he says, he's going to show them great and mighty things. And he describes the very same things. In chapter uh, 33, verse uh, seven, a regathering. Verse 6, prosperity. Verse 11, the knowledge of God. Verse 8, forgiveness of sins. Now next week in verses 14 and following, we're going to connect this to a whole other concept. We're actually going to start the connection this evening, but we'll see it more, more solidly next week. So perhaps what you're beginning to see here is that we are building a more complete picture, not just of what God wants to do, but how he intends to see it done. Now we all know this picture because we live in the New Testament, right? We all know this picture because we can go to Romans chapter 5 through 10 and see this whole structure. But this is how the structure was formed. We are seeing in Jeremiah 33 the building of the prophetic structure that when Jesus was walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he began in the in the New Old Testament and he expounded to them all of the the things concerning him, as he would do so. He would be building up progressive revelation. Jeremiah 31 through 33 is a really important part of progressive revelation. Remember when we were talking through revelation and we kept going to Daniel because Daniel, particularly Daniel 9, is a, an incredibly important element of the progressive revelation. Jeremiah 31 through 33 is as well. And what we have seen, Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant and its results, Jeremiah 33, talking about this idea of calling unto the Lord and its results, we see thus the means by which the new covenant comes into effect. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, God said, If ye seek me, ye shall find me if ye search with all your heart. Jeremiah 33 verse 3, God says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. This posture of complete submission that God has called them unto, objective yieldedness, this is the means by which the nation can enter into the new covenant and will enter into the new covenant. If they seek God, they'll find him. If they call unto him, he will answer them. And, and excuse me, and these things form that means by which they will enter the new covenant, after which God will give them the new heart, they will obey Him, they will be His people, He will be their God. and then God will be able to pour upon them the blessings and finally give them all of the promises of the previous covenants, as we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks. So our picture is no, more complete now. The nature of the transition, transaction by which one enters into the new covenant is more complete now. It's important to understand the cause and effect of which we've just spoken before we move forward. Notice that God has not told them within the scope of the teachings on the new covenant that they are going to cleanse themselves. Notice that obedience and righteousness are the results of the new covenant not the means by which they enter in. The new heart is a result of the new covenant. A desire to obey, a result of the new covenant. The knowledge of the Lord, a result of the new covenant. The people aren't going to enter into the new covenant by doing. They're going to enter into the new covenant by seeking and by calling. Both of these carry the idea of setting aside their own attempts at righteousness their own attempts at deliverance, their own attempts at salvation. That's what they've been trying to do for the last 450 years of Israel's history by this point. They've been seeking to themselves. They've been seeking to the nations around them. They've been seeking to other gods. They've been seeking to any number of things. God says, when you finally simply seek to me, you'll find me. When you finally call unto me, humbling yourself before my design, humbling yourself before my word, humbling yourself before my way, you will find me. When they wholly yield themselves unto the Lord, upon doing so, God will work in them that which they have never been able to do themselves. God will finally give them what they have never been able to produce within themselves. It's very important that we understand this. The new heart, it's a product of the, of, of, of the new covenant. Not the means by which they enter in, but the results. The means by which they enter in. Seek me, call unto me. Upon doing so, God would answer them, would work in them. Their duty was to yield, was to submit. Then God will make the covenant. God will change them God will deliver them. God will bless them. And this order of operations is essential to understanding not only what God is promising to Israel on that day, which will be realized at the time of Jacob's trouble, but also as it relates to the new covenant and our relationship to it. Now, as we consider these things, progressive revelation continues from Jeremiah chapter 33 and it takes us through to a prophecy in Joel. Now, the prophecy in Joel is related once again to the time of, uh, after the time of Jacob's trouble. It's related to the time that we would consider to be the end times. And within the scope of that time, we see a very similar concept. Joel chapter two, verses 28 to 32, the Bible says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Okay, now as we who know the New Testament, as we who have read the New Testament and studied the New Testament know, verses 28 and 29 were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Right, God poured out His Spirit. The Spirit of God fell upon the 120 in the upper room. This would happen several more times in the early church to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles, old men, uh, young men prophesying, old men dreaming dreams, young men seeing visions. Uh, The the, the Spirit of God poured out on the servants and on the handmaids in that day. But beginning in verse 30, those prophecies are, or the promises are, are yet future. There are promises that we don't see fulfilled until the sixth seal is opened in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So we read, in beginning in verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, here it is, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant, whom the Lord shall call. So what we find here is we find a direct link between Jeremiah and Joel as to the timing of this. Now that doesn't surprise us because in Jeremiah we talked about the time of Jacob's trouble and everything that the new covenant entails is in the context of after the time of Jacob's trouble. But as it relates directly to Israel, what we find as we compare Joel. And Jeremiah is that this will take place around that time of Jacob's trouble. It will take place following these signs and these wonders and the terrible day of the Lord coming. Israel will experience the time of Jacob's trouble. The nations will call upon the name of the Lord. God will answer them with deliverance. The nation will seek God. They will find him when they search with all their hearts. Now we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the new covenant and our relationship to it. What I taught on that day is by no means a consensus opinion, though it is the most common. There are any number of people who believe that the church has absolutely no part in the New Covenant. Again, I'll talk more about that in uh, in, in a couple of weeks as we try to clarify a few of those things. I believe what we spoke upon a couple of weeks ago was right, was accurate. I'll clarify some of those things. But this concept which Jeremiah has connected to the receiving of the New Covenant for Israel is very much so their portion, their portion of how it is going to come about for them. It is essential, however, to understand the nature of our relationship to the New Covenant by grace through faith and to understand that in the church, among the Gentiles within this age, We follow the same order of operations with relation to our salvation. Salvation is a process of acknowledgement of what God has done, and it is only after we enter into that new covenant that then God cleanses our heart, that then God gives us a new heart, that then God uh, brings about in us the desire and the ability to know the Lord, and we become His people, and He becomes our God. And the link to this concept, if you haven't uh, uh, discerned it already, is Romans chapter 10. Right? Okay, so we've talked about this. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great mighty things which thou knowest not. Uh, Breaching that into Joel, bridging it into Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that in that day it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are these promises only for Israel? Is this only speaking to Israel? Here's what we find in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is very distinctly speaking about national Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 do. The Bible says this, Paul writing, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, that would be national Israel, is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. The man that can keep the law shall live by the law. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul quotes a number of scriptures here in the first several verses, first 9, verses of Romans 10. In verse 5, he quotes Exodus 20, verse 11. In verses 6 through 8, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. And this word that Paul says is nigh is this, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved, believing with the heart, confessing with the mouth. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, Paul again, quoting from the Old Testament, this time in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And notice how Paul draws upon these Old Testament principles to form an indelible link between Jew and Gentile. He said there, There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. And so he says, just as in the Old Testament, just as in Jeremiah, just as in Joel, We see this idea, call unto me, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just as we see God speak of the promises of the new covenant to Israel in that time of Jacob's trouble, so too God is rich unto the Jew and to the Greek because it's the same Lord over all. The same way that the Jews will receive him one day and he'll go on in Romans 11 to say that Israel will be saved in that day, so too is he rich unto those who will call upon him. Today, God is the same Lord over all, rich unto all them that call upon him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Quoting from Joel 2.32, broadening that to not just mean whichever Jew shall call upon the name of the Lord, but as it is truly stated, whoever, Jew or Greek, and then linking, of course, to that promise in Jeremiah 33, three, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now, by going to Romans 10 today, I am jumping a bit ahead of the text in Jeremiah, because in Jeremiah, the next step will show how these promises of the new covenant relate to the promises of the good shepherd and of the righteous branch. We're going to talk about that next week. We all know how they relate, right? We know how Messiah relates to all of this. We'll we'll see Jeremiah present that relationship next week. But just to give us a, a bit of a preview of that before we change gears, since we are in Romans 10. Romans 10 shows that the next layer, which Jeremiah 33, verses 14 and following will show us next week, that seeking unto God and calling upon him will be seeking unto the Messiah and calling unto the Messiah will be going through Messiah. And Messiah will usher men into the new covenant and its blessings because Messiah will be the mediator of that new covenant. And so it is that when God says, call unto me, when God says, seek me, we'll seek him through the way, the truth and the life. We'll call unto him who is the way, the truth and the life because no man can come unto the Father but by him, but by Christ. And so we see this extra layer through Romans 10. That's a sneak preview. Next week we'll see Jeremiah present that layer. And we'll dig in a little bit deeper. Now, for the remainder of our time together, I want to talk about this link between Jeremiah 33 3, Joel 2, and Romans 10, and how it pertains to the gospel of salvation. This is one of four passages in the scripture where the Bible contains specific salvation formulas that have caused no end of division within the church. Here we find the necessity to believe and to confess with your mouth to be saved. Confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord and it shall be saved and you shall be saved. And so many people say that if a person does not believe and then audibly confess with their mouth, the Lord Jesus, then their salvation is invalid. Perhaps you've heard that before. We then have those who say we need to believe and be baptized. Well, that's silly. We'll accept that it came out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Okay, so in Romans chapter 10, for with the heart man believes and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Then we have Jesus giving this this record of the great commission in Mark chapter 16, and he says, Preach, the gospel, and then he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. All right, he doesn't say anything about confessing here. He doesn't say anything about calling here. He only says, believe and be baptized. Huh. Okay, so now we have one gospel presentation that says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Now we have a second gospel presentation that says, believe and be baptized and they shall be saved. What about Peter in Acts chapter 2? Verses 38 and 39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. So now we have Peter on the day of Pentecost and he doesn't say believe and be baptized, as Jesus did in Mark 16. Nor does he say, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. From Romans chapter 10, he says, repent and be baptized. And in doing so, they'd receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 44 says that they, they, it calls them they that believed. And then finally, we have one more, again from Jesus, again in Mark. Mark chapter 1, the other end of Mark, verse 15 Jesus was preaching a message saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Okay, so we had confess and believe. And then we had believe and be baptized. And then we had repent and be baptized. And then we had repent and believe. All four of those are very different. And the question is, what do we do with that? Do we combine them all? So salvation is repent and believe and confess with your mouth and be baptized and then you're saved. And if all of these things are not present at the moment of decision, then somehow salvation has not been secured. And not only that, but things get really confusing when you consider that in Mark chapter one verse fifteen, J- Jesus didn't mention baptism or confession with your mouth. And in Acts chapter two, Peter didn't mention confessing with your mouth. And in Mark sixteen verses fifteen and sixteen, J- Jesus didn't mention repentance or confession with your mouth. So were they all giving false gospels? Well, we know Jesus didn't give a false gospel. We know the word of God does not give a false gospel. So what do we do with this? And amazingly enough, even in all of those repentance passages, not one passage in the whole New Testament ever calls for anyone to repent of their sin to be saved. Not once. You cannot find one passage in the entire New Testament where salvation is linked to repentance of sin at all. So now we have, as a matter of fact, the only time we see repentance of sin in relation to anyone is Peter or is Paul writing to the church at Corinth about them repenting of sin. And he doesn't even say repent of sin. He only says repent of, and then he lists some sins. So now we have Jesus giving a different gospel in Mark 1 than he gives in Mark 16. And we have Peter giving a different gospel in Acts 2 than Jesus gave in either Mark 1 or Mark 16 and not one of them agrees with paul's confession and belief idea in romans 10. and this has led some to believe that there are actually many gospels given to many different people groups in any given time this is not true this has led some to believe that people got saved different ways in different time periods this is not true we studied that this morning right through abraham through david through the church abraham believed god it was imputed unto him for righteousness david proclaimed imputed righteousness by faith. We claim imputed righteousness by faith. Paul spends literal chapters on this. And this is my exhortation to you as we consider this together. I know this is off topic a bit from Jeremiah 33, but I really want us to understand this and I think this passage gives us great impetus to do so. In Romans 10, Paul presents an order of things. He says, preach so that they will hear, so that they will believe, so that they will call on the Lord. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? In Mark 15, excuse me, 1 verse 15, Jesus says, repent ye. But as I mentioned, it does not say of sin. Not one New Testament passage where, he, where we see repent of sin to be saved. The only passage that speaks of men repenting of their sin in any way is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, and Paul is speaking to Christians about them repenting of their sin. Never an unbeliever repenting of his sin. This is a concept which is pervasive in theology, but is entirely foreign to Scripture. Okay? Much the rather... The repentance that the Bible speaks of is the repentance that's described toward for for the believer. For the unbeliever, for belief is described in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Excuse me. There we go. Paul writes this. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation. So this is the foundation of the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Repentance from dead works, right? Repentance from anything and everything that I might be trusting in to get myself to heaven and putting my faith in God and God alone. Renouncing my dead works, putting my faith in the work that Jesus Christ has already done. That is the repentance that the Bible speaks of. This is the repentance that is being preached time and again. And it's only defined here in relation to salvation in Hebrews chapter six, verse one. I challenge you to find any place where repentance of sin is linked to salvation in the Bible. You will not find it, at least not in the New Testament. <laughs> so we have this call. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That one thus melts away, right? The controversy re- melts away because repentance is simply, not, is, is simply rejecting anything or everything that I might be trusting in for salvation other than God. Believing the gospel and repentance are thus the same thing. That, one, that one's done. We, 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 we solve that one. Mark 16, Jesus calls upon them to believe and be baptized, specifically citing that he that believeth not shall be damned. He doesn't say he that believeth and is baptized not shall be damned, right? He says he that believeth not shall be damned. And then we have the book of John. This is the last little piece of the puzzle I want to give you before we put it all together. John gives the purpose of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The entire book of John, John says, is written specifically so that people would know what it is they need to believe and that they would believe it to be saved. I remind you, the word repent is not found once in the entire book of John, Gospel of John. The concept of confession is only seen one time as a sign of belief. We'll talk more about that in a moment. That's very important. And the book says that Jesus never once baptized anyone. John says Jesus never baptized anyone. Only his disciples would baptize. John, the Gospel of John, explicitly says that. So if Jesus came to see people brought into the kingdom, it's this funny way to do it if baptism is required that he never, he refused to baptize anyone, okay? So at this point, we find that the only thread, and uh, you, you know this, right? I've talked about this any number of times. The only thread that links every teaching on the point of salvation is this one word, Believe, 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 believe that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we can actually break these various salvation words into categories and we can understand what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 10, how it links to Joel, how it links to Jeremiah. We have the category of the inward and we have the category of the outward. There's a category of the heart and there's a category of action. There's a category of faith and there's a category of works that justify the faith. Remember what we've been talking about in Hebrews? Remember what we've been talking about when we've referenced James? That in James 2, James says, faith without works is dead, being alone. And what he teaches in that passage, very similar to what we've talked about in Hebrews 11, is that faith presupposes works, that works may exist without faith, But wherever faith exists, works will naturally follow. And if you never see the works, then you should really wonder if there's faith. So every element of faith has a natural outworking. The faith needed to be saved from sin, to be born again, to be ushered into the kingdom, to be justified by grace through faith is minimal. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that you invest in this reality, that you cannot save yourself, that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, that Jesus did the work on the cross, that he was buried, that that he rose again the third day in victory over sin and over death and over hell. And because he lives, so too you can. He can break the chains of your sin. He can give you eternal life. You believe that and you're saved. You repent of your dead works. You trust in Christ alone. Now, that is the inward decision that you make, the faith. And the natural outworking of this, if you have that faith, the faith needed to be saved from your sin, the inevitable result of that faith will be that you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That's the inevitable result. And the divine method that Jesus prescribed in the Gospels by which that confession would be realized is baptism That's what baptism is, right? It's a public confession of my faith. It's a public profession of my faith. It is me saying publicly I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins that he was buried that he rose again the third day. I believe that. I'm in. That's what baptism is. It's not a requirement to be saved. But it is an inevitable result of salvation, confession with your mouth. Now, the thief on the cross could not be baptized, right? He was hanging on that cross. But he did confess the Lord Jesus, did he not? He confessed, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That's a pretty good confession of his faith. Now, he didn't have to do that to be saved, but what does that indicate to us? It indicates to us that he was saved, right? It's the natural indication. It is the outward result. Faith produces something. Faith always produces something. If it's in the heart, it's going to come out. This is what the Bible says. If it's in the heart, it's going to come out. This is what James 2 tells us. This is what Hebrews 11 tells us about faith. Faith produces something. The faith that I believe in my heart is going to come out In confessing the Lord Jesus. So we have the inward decision, the faith, believe in your heart, repent of dead works, right? That's the same thing. And then we have an outward result confess with your mouth, be baptized, call upon the name of the Lord. For many throughout history, baptism has been that moment for them of confession with their mouths. Uh, when you talk to people from other countries and you ask them about when they got saved, oftentimes they will tell you about when they got baptized, not because they believe in baptismal regeneration necessarily, but because their, their moment that they associate with their salvation is the moment that they publicly acknowledge Christ. Because that's what baptism is. It's a public confession of your faith in Jesus. To this end, all throughout the New Testament, we are given one coherent presentation of salvation. I, I hope you see that. Salvation takes place at the moment that a man believes in his heart the truths of the gospel, repenting of anything and everything that he may be trusting in to reconcile himself to God, and trusting in Christ alone to bring him into relationship with God, to break the chains of his sin, and to give him a home in heaven and eternal life. And since no one can see a man's heart, as believers, we seek to the results. of of a man's faith before putting any confidence in that faith and the results that God has prescribed is that a man confessed Jesus associates himself with Jesus and God designed the universal method of confession within the church that that safety net of how do we know this confession to be baptism now in an age of prosperity false converts abound right This is to be understood. It's very hard to identify converts because anyone can get baptized. There's no no problem with getting baptized. There's no stigma that comes with being baptized in, in many circles. There are in certain circles. In other countries, it is not so. In other countries around the world, even today, to be baptized carries with it tremendous consequences within culture, within society. Because at that point, you are publicly confessing, publicly identifying yourself as a believer publicly identifying yourself with Christ so men preach people hear they believe in their heart they are saved and they, are, they confess with their mouths as a natural outworking of the belief the faith that they have in their heart justifying their faith and this process in the church is very consistent we talked through 1 John chapter 4 this morning the same thing was said there Verses 2 and 3. 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Right? What is the test of the Spirit? What is the test about whether a Spirit is of God? Do they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? This is the outward manifestation of the Spirit. Right? And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever you heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Skip to verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. See, in 1 John, 1 John we know is not a book that's written to tell you who, uh, it's, it's written to believers, right? It's not about being saved, it's about how you know that you are saved. Should it surprise us then that when John wrote the Gospel of John, he spoke not of repentance. He made it clear that Jesus baptized no one. He spoke of confession only once and as a sign of belief because in, first, because in, in the Gospel of John, he's only talking about how to be saved. And then in 1 John, he writes very clearly, if you're saved, you will confess Jesus. Now he's writing to believers, and he says, how do you know that you're a believer? Because you confess him. Because you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, therefore you know that God dwells in him, or in you. Because confession of Jesus is a sign, an outward result of belief, not a part of the process of believing itself. And we need to help people understand this. Now, if a person believes that you must believe and confess or believe and repent of sin or believe and be baptized, and, and they've done these things, okay, well, they, they, they've done it, right? They, they, they might be a, a little wishy-washy on all the ins and outs, but the fact of the matter is they bear the marks of a believer. But the greater danger is when they come up to someone who hasn't done all of those things that they think they need to do, be it repent of sin or be baptized or confess with their mouths in some particular way, and they go around telling people you've done it wrong. And this goes both ways. Go up to someone and say, well, uh, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, well, have you repented of your sin? Well, have you confessed with your mouth? Well, have you been baptized? And if they say no to anyone, well, then you're not a believer. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who says? You see, this is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing when we tell people they aren't saved because they haven't done it properly. What does that mean to, to be saved properly? It's a dangerous thing when we become so reliant upon a process, so reliant upon the words, so reliant upon their definitions. And then we start to hound people who haven't done it the way we think it needs to be done. Now, if people are truly believing that something that they have or have not done or could or could not do is what saves them, then there's a works element to their salvation. We talked about that this morning, right? And that doesn't work. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. When people come up and they say, I don't know if I'm saved because I don't know if I did it right, there's something wrong in their thinking. There's something wrong in their thinking because you don't do it right. That's not how salvation works. It's not about doing it right. It's about believing In Christ, it's about seeking him and you'll find him. It's about calling unto him and he will answer thee. It's about what God has done for us. God saves us, not us. God does the work we yield. It's our job to yield. God saves and all of this serves only to confuse, rather than to clarify; only to divide, rather than to establish truth. Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. When a man receives the truth, he believes in Christ's work. He is saved. When a man is saved, that salvation will bear the fruit. It won't bear the fruit of uh, of, of doing everything right. That's not the natural fruit. You plant a seed of you plant a kernel of corn in the ground. You're not expecting to get an entire garden. If I plant a kernel of corn into the ground and I get corn and watermelon and cucumbers and squash, give me one of those seeds, right? But that's not how it works. You plant the corn, you get corn. You plant the watermelon, you get watermelon. You plant the squash, you get squash, right? The seed of faith unto salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. What you get as results is confessing the Lord Jesus. When I plant the, se- the other seeds of faith, I'll get the other results. When I plant the seed of faith as it relates to anger, I'll get the seed of self-control. When I plant the seed of faith as it relates to lust, I will, get, I, I, will, I will have the growth of purity. When I choose an area of my life within which to exercise faith, if I choose the area of my finances to exercise faith, I will receive from that the Lord's provision. If I choose the area Uh, of temperance to exercise faith, I will receive that what 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 I sow is what I'll reap. When I sow saving faith, I'm not reaping the entire gamut of what it means to be a Christian. I'm reaping, I'm reaping what I sowed. What I sowed is that bit of faith that says, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross, what I reap is that confession. And then God begins to change me. And all of those other things follow. If a man is unwilling to publicly associate with Christ, his faith is empty, his faith is dead, his faith is vain. James 2 tells us that. He may know it in his head, but he has not borne the fruit of it. Now, I talked to you about this just briefly this morning. We see an interesting case study of this in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, Jesus is teaching, there are Pharisees nearby, and the Bible says this in verses 42 and 43, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is the only time we see that word confess in John used to speak toward any element of a spiritual relationship with God or the hearts of men. Jesus said that the man who would not take up his cross and follow him was not worthy of him throughout his time, didn't he? These chief rulers knew that Jesus was who he said he was, but they chose the praise of men above the praise of God. And that choice revealed that while they were inwardly persuaded that that what Jesus said was true, they had not willingly committed themselves to it because they had not borne the fruit of confession. Now, whether or not these men were justified according to the Bible, you know, the Bible does not say, but they failed the test. They failed the test that John gives in 1 John 4, that test of confessing the Lord Jesus because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so we can certainly have no confidence that these chief rulers were believers uh, in, in the genuine sense. We see the idea that they believed on him but that they were born again, we can't have confidence because they refused to confess him. And so as we close, we trace this back to where it began. Paul's teaching in Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Quoting Joel chapter two, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Invoking Jeremiah 33:3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's what we found. We found an offer. We found an offer from God to the nation of Israel that in the day that they call upon him, he would do something for them. He's not asking them to change themselves. He's asking them to humble themselves so that he can change them. And then we have considered these other elements. And I'd like us to talk about those as we close. There are perhaps a couple of different listeners under the sound of my voice today. Perhaps there's someone here who who has known all of these things about Jesus to be true. Like those chief rulers in John 12, you know all of those things about Jesus are true, but you have been unwilling to confess him. You have not seen that willing fruit of faith in your life, which is open confession of Christ. When it comes time to stand upon your faith, you fold because you love the praise of men more than the praise of God. The fruit of your life is revealing something about your faith. The bar of faith unto salvation is, relatively speaking, quite low. But the Bible says, few there be that find it. Because it means a willing association with Jesus Christ and a willing association with his word, with his way. Have you made that association? Do you see the willing association? Do you see the fruit of belief in confession in in, in alignment There are perhaps those as well who had become confused by various presentations of the gospel. This is all over the place today. We make a a point of not having literature in this church that says repent of your sins in the gospel presentation. You won't see it on any of the tracts. You won't see it on any of those things. makes it hard to find literature from our circles because it all says it. If a person repents of their sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, will they be saved? <laughs> Absolutely. But does it serve to muddy what should be clear? It can. And maybe with these different words, repent, believe, confess, call, be baptized, things got muddy. And I hope and pray that as we walked through all of these different concepts this evening that I hope you found some clarity about how repentance relates to belief, about how repentance and belief relate to the inward element of faith, how confession, calling upon the name of the Lord, are, are, are encapsulated in this idea of being baptized, and how all of these are outward manifestations of that inward action, and how that those outward manifestations are not a part of, of the action or the, the, the inward itself, but are the natural results of the seed that's planted. How that seed of faith bears itself out in confession, in a public declaration. And I, I, I really hope and pray that this message has added to clarity rather than to the confusion and that we might be able to both have a united front in our minds as it relates to salvation and these words that are used, how to explain to someone Mark chapter 1, verse 15, how to explain to someone Mark 16 if they come up and say, but the Bible says here, repent and be baptized. But the Bible says here, believe and be baptized. But the Bible says here, confess and believe. But the Bible says here, Now I I hope it's added to your capacity to explain that. But I also hope that it means that we can present a united front as we go out of these doors and we interact with people that as we seek to share the gospel, that we'll be able to share the gospel in a clear way, in a way that doesn't confuse, in a way that doesn't muddy the waters, because we understand how these concepts in the Bible relate to one another. And it doesn't mean that you can't use the concept of confession or the concept of repentance or the concept of belief. You can't, it doesn't even mean that you, you can't compel a person unto baptism, but what it means is that you understand each one's proper place. May God help us to thus go forth with clarity and not add to the confusion. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.